Well, again, thank you for joining us uh, tonight. Uh, you folks that are joining us on delayed broadcast, welcome tonight. Most of you know me. I'm Cordell Compton, one of the, uh, what do I do? I'm one of the community group leaders. Help me out, Drew. And, uh, yeah, I'm Deacon, or not much longer, so. Yeah, well. I'm, I'm not involved in that anymore. So, but anyway, Pastor Scott, every now and then, asked me to fill in for him. It's always a pleasure to, to do that. I enjoy it. Uh, unlike Pastor Scott's lessons that um, he has, I do not have a handout for you. That said, you note takers, either on your tablets or pencil and pad like Drew has, why, make sure you got enough lead and ink in there. By the way, cell phones turned off, silenced, so we don't have any interruptions here. We're going to look briefly at the seven I am statements that Jesus made in the book of John. And we'll get there in a little bit, but um, I want to touch on just a teeny bit of history to kind of set the stage for it. When you finish in whatever version of scripture that you have when you finish the book of Malachi or as my uh, friend of Italian persuasion back in Arizona would say Malachi uh, you, you turn to Matthew but in most Bibles there's a blank page or two if you have some of the super-duper commentaries, they may have some discussion about what happened between those, that juncture there. And so I'd like to, to set the stage to do that. And I'll come back to this setting the stage toward the end of the time here, because while history is important, it's more than just dates, facts, figures, people, and so forth and so on. If you look at the period of time from roughly 516 B.C. to 70 A.D., sometimes that's called the uh, Second Temple Period. You have the, and I'm, and I'm going to really do a whitewash, broad brush treatment, not in any detail because I want to hit the sections in John that we need to get to. But to just set the stage, you've got the Persian period during there, roughly 539 to 331. Then you have the Hellenistic period or the Greek period after that, 331 to 164 B.C., when you talk about the Hellenistic or the Greek period in there, 
is there a name that jumps out that you remember? Not not biblical, but a history name. And Drew gets to wash off the blackboard. <laughs> Alexander the Great. He was a young general. He died when he was 33 years old. The last few years of his life, he was very depressed. He went into a downward spiral because he looked at all that he had conquered, the known, basically the known world at that time. And he said, I have no worlds to conquer. And he died shortly after that. If you're interested, Daniel chapter 8 talks about him, not by name, but by historic reference. And when Alexander died, what happened to his kingdom? It broke up among four of his generals. And I'm sure those names are just tripping off your tongue as we speak here. Cassander, Ptolemy, Antigones, and Seleucus. Those were the four generals that divided up his kingdom. Then you move on to the Maccabean period, roughly 164 to 63 B.C., and then the Roman period from 63 up to about A.D. 70, or, or actually the, about the 4th century A.D. The Roman economy, of course, was um, dependent on slave labor in every aspect of its being in households in shops there weren't factories but little shops agriculture and that ultimately uh, caused many many problems for them their emperors during some of the new testament period augustus tiberius gaius caligula Claudius, and of course, Nero. As far as philosophy, they were a handful of kind of weird, interesting beliefs, if you want to call it that. The Platonists, they expanded Plato's concept of the realm of ideas that was more important than individual expression. The Sophists, they were embracing the execution of a rhetorical argument. How well could you put together something? Didn't matter if it made sense, didn't matter if it was true or not, but how well did you put that together? The cynics, they followed a naturalistic kind of pious way of living. The Epicureans, life was about maximizing earthly pleasures. Go for the gusto, basically, would have been a motto if they had one. The Stoics was an expression of rational force, good living, favored over reason, over spontaneous emotions. They were very structured, very rigid. 
So that's just a snapshot of some of those things. Then you come to the Jewish groups. The Sadducees, of course, were familiar. They're mentioned in Scripture a lot, New Testament. They were mostly wealthy. They came from wealthy priestly families in Jerusalem. And they were really kind of unpopular and unfriendly. But they had wealth and they had power. Uh, they held that the Pentateuch was canonical, and, but they denied the oral tradition of the priests. They believed in free will, but did not believe in the resurrection of the dead or future life or angels. Then we have the Pharisees. And if you have a study Bible or done any studying along this line, or you can maybe have seen charts side by side. And it's almost a ping pong. What the Sadducees did not believe, the Pharisees did, and vice versa in some cases. They believed the Pharisees in the Torah, but also in the oral traditions of the priest. They believed in angels, the resurrection of the dead, and their teaching was more ethical and theologic. They believed in a mediating position between free will and the sovereignty of God. And Shammai, Hillel, and Gamaliel are some names that you might remember, especially Gamaliel. Those were well thought of, respected members of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, of course, and as you probably remember, Pharisees and the Sadducees were members of the Sanhedrin, the 71 member of the ruling legal religious body there. They, um, they met in a semicircle like that to hear cases, situations, and when it came time to vote, you know, the guilt or innocence or the um, acceptance of a religious um, proclamation or whatnot, they would vote, but they voted in a particular way. Any ideas how they voted other than, yeah, I agree, I don't mean that, but the order in which they voted. Time's up. <laughs> they vote, vote Ed, much like our U.S. Supreme Court. They started with the youngest member and then went to the most senior person. Interesting on that point. The Essenes, they observed laws of the Torah, communal ownership, sense of mutual responsibility, and daily study and worship. And then there was another group, the Zealots. They opposed tax payments to a pagan emperor, but they were loyal to Jewish tradition. And then we come to the topic for tonight, the seven I am statements that Jesus 
mentioned and spoke about in the book of John. Now, when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, John is unusual. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are typically or often referred to as the synoptics, synoptic Gospels. That means they were, to, literally it comes from the Greek word meaning to see together. And there were very close similarities uh, between or among those three. Uh, in your some of your study Bibles, there is a chart of uh, oh, what is it? A chart of uh, Jesus' parables, uh, his miracles, uh, his healings, things like that. And when you go through there, if you look Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke. You can read across the charts, and there's differences, maybe a little different order, but they're pretty similar. John, though, he has got a higher proportion of discourse in relation to the narrative than the synoptics do. And unlike the other three books, uh, John does not have narrative parables. No eschological discourses. No account of any casting out of demons or healing somebody, healing lepers, for example. No list of the apostles. No formal institution of the Lord's Supper. And it doesn't mention Jesus' birth, his baptism, transfiguration, temptation, or any of that. John's Gospel stands alone as one of the key foundations of the New Testament. I was, years ago, I was in a class dealing with, um, I think it was uh, kind of a witnessing class or new, new members class. I, I wasn't a new member, but somehow I was in there. And somebody asked the question, well, if you run into a new member or a new Christian, what book would you recommend that they read and study? And without question, the pastor or the leader of the group said, Book of John, because it has so much packed in few chapters there. So let's look at the name that Jesus called himself in seven times in the first uh, about the first half of the book. One of the first times that we run into the name I am it's way, way, way back in Exodus chapter 3 where we see Moses trying to lead the people. In verse 13 of chapter 3, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What am I going to say? What am I going to tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is how I am to be remembered in every generation. In the Septuagint, which you probably remember is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they translated that, I am the existing one. Or it could be translated, I will be what or who I will be. In other words, you can't put God in a box. He is almost, not almost, he's undefinable. He is what he is. If you go back to verse 15 of Exodus um, chapter 3, he said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God, Elohim, is what the word is there. But he shortened it to the tetragrammaton of leaving out the vowels. There, my W. H.W. And Jewish Orthodox tradition, they won't say that word. They will say, Lord, Adonai. That word is sacred to them. So the first statement that we run across is in John chapter 6 and he mentions it several verses but I'm looking in particular at 635 he says I'm the bread of life just as bread sustains physical life Jesus offers and sustains physical life or spiritual life now he had just Jesus had just fed the 5,000 not too long before this. So the crowd saw that, probably some of them that were at that event were here. And who knows, they might have been expecting another feeding of that. We don't know. But they missed the connection that Jesus was trying to make between him and his father. <clears throat> Listen to this quote from a now kind of almost forgotten writer, Christian writer, Arthur Pink, like the shirt P I N K. 
He said, talking about feeding and bread of life, he said, if the Christian fails to feed on Christ daily, if he substitutes the husks of religious forms and ceremonies, if he substitutes the religious husks, if the husk of religious forms and ceremonies, religious books, religious excitement, the glare and glitter of modern Christianity, he will be weak, he or she will be weak and sickly. It is failure at this very point that is mainly responsible for the feebleness of so many of God's people. Pink, um, you ask, well, who's Arthur Pink, or who was Pink? He was born in 1886. He passed away in 1952. Uh, he was an Englishman. He was born in Nottingham. I'm going to move over here. You can't see. Or maybe you're maybe you're trying to hide him, so I'll move back over here. Uh, he was born in Nottingham, England, and his early life, not a whole lot is known, but it wasn't until 1908 when he renounced some kind of weird beliefs and ideas and became a Christian. Kind of like somebody else that we read about a lot. C.S. Lewis, same deal. Uh, he wanted to be a minister, but... He really didn't want to go to any of the colleges and over in England. So he came to the colonies here and he studied for a time at Moody Bible Institute, Chicago. And he worked at various pastorates, Colorado, California, oddly enough, in Kentucky, where he met his wife. Uh, in 1916, met her in Bowling Green, western part of the state, and then the next year, 1917, they moved south to Spartanburg over the county state line, and he pastored a Baptist church there. But then, pastoring really wasn't what his he felt like his calling was. His calling was studying and writing, writing books and uh, pamphlets that would teach and share the good news about Jesus. So 1936, they moved back to England. They settled at Hove near Brighton on the southern coast. But in 1940, during the war, while that was a favorite bombing spot, for the Luftwaffe bombers, so they moved to the northeast coast of Scotland where he lived out his years and passed away in 1952. In chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And to a world that was and is lost in darkness. 
Jesus offers himself as a guide. Now you think back to the New Testament times or even Old Testament times. Their illumination that they had in their homes, uh, they didn't of course have anything like we have. They had very weak torches and oil lamps that did not give out too much light. And so if they were walking along, holding their little torch or oil lamp, they could only see just a very few feet in front of them. They didn't have gizmos like this. This is a very small version. That's my old um, flashlight that I carried when I was on duty with the sheriff's office back in Arizona. When you're patrolling the crime scene in the middle of the night or pulling up behind a car that you don't know who or what's in, you want all the lights you can. Of course, you kick on the deck lights, the search light, and everything. But they didn't have those things back then. They could only see a step or two ahead, maybe not even that far. How does Jesus, not always, but how does Jesus, how does Father God lead and guide us? Does He always show the end from the beginning on certain things? Not always. Sometimes, but not always. It's a step at a time. And you step out in faith, and then your next step is illuminated and your next step, and your next step. As he wrote in 1 John 1.5, he said, Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And then that much, much quoted verse from Psalms, one nineteen hundred and five. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Then in chapter ten, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Seven verses seven and nine. Jesus protects his followers as the shepherds protected their flocks from predators. A gate or a door would keep out predators, but would also protect those that were inside the enclosure. And, I, and I've gotten a little farther ahead than I wanted to get because when Jesus mentioned what he did about himself, about himself in these seven statements, he was saying, I am. I'm God. And how do you think that went over with the Jewish authorities? 
not real good. And say several occasions they picked up stones to stone him, but he escaped. His time was not up yet. Then in chapter, also chapter 10, uh, verse 11 and 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is committed to caring and watching over those who are his. They were familiar with farming and um, animal references back then, much more than we are now. A shepherd that had a flock of sheep, he had to care for them. He had to take care of them. Basically, they were helpless without him. He had to lead them to the water. He had to protect them. He had to move them where there was green fields that they could graze in. And he had some type of staff with him. Quite often it would have a crook in the top of it. It would be very tall and strong. He would use that to guide them, to push them where they needed to go. If somebody, if one of them got tangled up in the thicket, he could use the end to kind of pull them out. Or if they were being naughty, he could probably clonk them with it if he had to. Jesus is our shepherd. He cares for us. He cares for you. He cares for me. And I can't I can't let the good the shepherd thing go without remembering Ezekiel chapter 34. There's not time to, to read it, but read about the first half or so of that. That was a prophecy against the evil, the bad shepherds. Um, I said we don't, and we don't, but there's a couple of phrases that I just want to call to your attention to remember. Word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of their flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. 
So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched for them. And then dropping down to verse 10. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Stern words, but very true. When God said, I am against the shepherds. We never, ever want to get into a position where God says to us, to me, I am against you because you're on the wrong side. John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Death is not the final word for those in Christ. Believers may die physically, but that's not the ultimate end. Death cannot destroy the life that Jesus gives. When we turn from our sin and Accept him. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, preacher from the 19th and early 20th centuries, put it this way. He said, You and your sins must separate, or you and your God will not come together. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the source of all truth and knowledge about God. That word, um, I am the way, the way, in the original, uh, in the Koine Greek, it means a path. It can mean a path as a way to walk. Or it can also mean a course of conduct. In that chapter of um, John 14, Jesus was talking to his um, disciples there, and they were concerned. In verse 1 of that, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then just a few verses later, in verse 27, he used that same phrasing. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
and do not be afraid. They were concerned what they were going to do. He was telling them <clears throat> some things that they could not understand at the time. And when he says in those two verses, first of all, it's repeated twice in a very short period of time. So when something in Scripture just is a sticky note for study, when something like that happens, it's kind of a 30-point, bold-faced, italic, underlined statement. Pay attention. Listen up. This is important. That's what something repeated that way means. And then he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. The word trouble there is, is interesting. I sometimes get, as you probably remember, I sometimes go off on, I won't say tangents, because that means you never get back to where you started, but I enjoy words. Um, their meanings, I guess it's natural. I'm a writer and author, so you know, it's kind of what I do. Have you ever been thinking about the, the folks down there on the storm path? Have you ever been out near a dock or a body of water where the water was very calm, very quiet, very glass-like? And then it started to get kind of ripply. And then it started to get more agitated. Maybe off in the distance you'd hear some thunder. And then that thunder would get closer and closer. And there might be a crack of lightning that would come. And the wind would kick up. And the hair on the back of your neck would stand up. And then you'd look at that formerly cold, calm water, and it's churning, it's boiling. The poets call it an angry sea. It's churning and tossing back and forth, up and down. That feeling personified by that water tossing and turning that's what Jesus is meaning there when he says, don't be troubled. Don't let your spirit, don't let your soul be tossed and turned like that water. Believe in God. Believe in me. And then in um, talking about the way, the truth, and the life, Back in Matthew chapter 7, he says, you, again, uh, verse 13, you can enter God's kingdom. This is from the New Living Translation, by the way. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow. 
and the road is difficult, and only a few find it. And then finally, the seventh I am statement, John 15, I am the true vine. And by attaching ourselves to Jesus, being grafted in, if you will, we enable His life to flow in and through us. Then we cannot help but bear fruit that will honor the Father. As we look back at all of these um, statements, Jesus was talking to the people then. But thankfully, John recorded all of this for us and our benefit now. We have to read it and take it in. Not just casually read it, but read it, study it, and chew on it. There's a Billy Graham story. There's hundreds, probably thousands of stories about Billy Graham. But he told this one, um, an incident. This was back when he was in uh, years and years ago when he was in better health. And they were holding a... Um, seminar or conference over at the Cove or where he, his house was. So one morning during the time there, uh, Brother Graham came in through the outside uh, sitting patio area there and he said, oh, he saw a friend that he hadn't seen before. We'll, we'll call him Pastor Smith. He was sitting off on a little bench by himself, older fellow. And Pastor Smith had his Bible open and he was reading. So Brother Graham says, oh, I haven't seen Brother Smith for so long, I'm going to say hello. So he comes up and says, Brother Smith, it's so good to see you. You're your Brother Smith. <laughs> It's so good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. And Brother Smith just kept on reading. He didn't look up, didn't acknowledge him. Well, Graham was kind of scratching his head. Well, you know, maybe I said something wrong. Maybe I upset him. So he just leaves him and goes off somewhere else. So later in the morning during break, <clears throat> Brother Graham sees Pastor Smith and he comes up and says, well, Pastor Smith, I, I spoke to you this morning and, and I hope I didn't offend you or anything. When I spoke to you, you were reading your, your Bible and uh, I just I didn't want to interrupt you, but I just wanted to you know, acknowledge you're here and thank you and glad to see you. And Pastor Smith said, well, you didn't offend me. It didn't bother me. If I had been praying to God, I would have stopped. 
and spoken to you. But I was reading God's Word and He was speaking to me. Can we be like that when we read God's Word? It's not just print on a page. It's God's Word speaking to you and to me. Some things to consider to wrap up this portion of the evening. When you're studying something, look at all of the cultural settings of scriptural passages, the socioeconomic settings, the political settings, the military issues that are involved. You don't have to, but sometimes that type of understanding makes it so that you can put some of the pieces together. Oh, that's why they did it this way. That was the culture. Now, I said when you study, and here's the second bullet point to study. My challenge to you is to pick something. Uh, a book, a book of scripture, a Bible character, uh, a topic, whatever, and study it. Drill down in it. Yes, read it, put it up, but dig into it. Find out all you can. Remember, like each of these statements that Jesus said about himself, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. Jesus is all sufficient for us. Amen. And last but not least, share the good news. Share the good news. Well, I don't know how to say it, and I'll get confused and all tangled up. Don't worry about that. Each of us has our life story mm -hmm. that we can tell to a non-believer or to a fellow or sister Christian to encourage them. Mm -hmm. And nobody can take that away from you mm -hmm. because it's your story. As I tell my community group, and they've heard many times and probably I've said it here a time or two, be sowers of the seed. Spread the good news. We are to be sowers of the seed, the Word of God, not, not seed.
soil inspectors. You can look at a person or a family or whatever. We don't know. You might be the first person to share the good news of Jesus with them. You might be the 10th person. You might be the 20th person. But you might be the 21st person. And they'll say, something will trigger in their spirit. I've heard that before. Somebody else told me about that. Tell me more about this guy. I want to know him. And there's your opening.